Whereas I'm going to go with Josh on this one. Part two looks like an A-team episode. You're both dead to me. Radio Drome. We're dipping back to the year 1985 in Radio Drome. I am Josh Hadley. With me, as always, is Cecil doesn't remember anyone else's name, Trachtenberg. You're dipping. You're a dip. You're a dip. <laughs> You're a dip. Peter's out this week, so Fred is sitting in because he was actually alive in 1985. I was indeed, sir, but I, uh... I don't know what to say. I apologize. That went nowhere. <laughs> there you go. You guys want to go somewhere, you go to adamandeve.com. Use the promo code DROME, and you will get 50% off of a single item, three free DVDs, a free clit bumper, and free U.S. shipping. Just use the promo code DROME at adamandeve.com. So now we're up to 1985 for looking back at on film in the years until I started formulating my list for this episode, I had forgotten what just a powerful, powerful year 1985 was. There are so many amazing movies that came out in 1985 in almost every genre you can think of, and even a couple that we hadn't thought of yet at that point. What film or films sum up 1985 to you? There are plenty of films, and we'll talk about them, but if I'm going to have to kind of narrow it down to one, I'd have to go with, and this is probably going to be something you're not expecting, but Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Seriously, arguably my all-time favorite comedy. I love this movie. Like, I, it's, I usually don't watch a lot of movies, like, over and over again, but Pee-wee's Big Adventure is a movie that I've just seen so many times, and I still laugh at it. I still uh, just get the the little subtle nuances, and I'm kind of irritated about how, like, Tim Burton was so on point with this and so many movies after this, and then recently, post-Planet of the Apes, I don't know what the hell happened, and he's just not the same director that he was, but uh, Pee-wee's Big Adventure is just, oh, God, I, I adore that movie. See, I'm not a huge fan of that one, but I can see Burton's genius in that film. I'm just not a fan of the film itself. Let's just say if Brazil from Terry Gilliam, my pick, had not come out this year, I would call it arguably the best directed film of 1985, although I think Gilliam beats it out with Brazil. As I said, that's my pick. Well, like Cecil, this is a this is a big year for me. I was 15 years old, and it, it might, again, much like Cecil, may not seem like the obvious choice because i think what stands out in that year is back to the future there were really uh, several films that ended up becoming films that i i really love they're films i saw later on video that i love from this year but as far as the theater i was going to the theater a lot my dad started taking me to the drive-in at this point and so i got to see probably more r-rated movies starting in this year than i did prior uh so the the one that really there's two specifically to jump up for this year, but the one that really jumps up for me is Fright Night. I got to see Fright Night on a drive-in theater, and my dad practically fell asleep <laughs> while we watched it. I loved that movie so much. I, I can't even tell you how much I love that movie. Uh, it just 
everything you could love. I was uh, I, I discovered I didn't really like horror as much as many of my friends did, but I grew up watching all the creature feature stuff. Right. You know, with Christopher Lee and Vincent Price and Peter Cushing and all my friends, they were watching the modern horror films. I wasn't. I wasn't really watching them outside of A Nightmare on Elm Street. I really didn't get into them. I was watching all the old creature features. So when I saw Fright Night, it was like a dream come true for me. A very special movie to me. It still is. Uh, I, I know this is going to sound weird. I get goosebumps when I hear the song, the theme song even. It, it holds a real special place in my heart. Other, for a different reason, um, it's not one of my favorite movies, but it is part of one of my favorite series, and that is the James Bond, uh, A View to a Kill. And I had become a Bond fan definitively when Fear Eyes Only came out, because I was just at that right age, you know? Exotic locations, beautiful women, it hit a note with me. Octopussy at the time disappointed me, and now here was A View to a Kill. <sighs> it was a huge letdown for me. Uh, so those were two films that really stand out in my memory. Brazil would be my pick, but I want to wait and talk about that in a little bit. You brought up the horror films. Let's look at some of the horror films that came out in 1985. You have some key horror films, Friday the 13th Part 5, which I think is an actually underrated Friday the 13th movie. If people weren't so pissed off, it's not Jason! It's actually a pretty good slasher flick. Of course, you got Fright Night. You got the very first Ghoulies from Charles Band. Hills Have Eyes Part 2, which, we, as we've discussed in the Wes Craven retro, is only half of a movie. Howling 2, which is an amazing movie where Christopher Lee and Reb Brown fight vampire werewolves. It's, <laughs> it's phenomenal. Life Force came out this year. Yeah. Although that one might be in the science fiction category more. That one kind of really straddles the line. The theatrical cut I enjoyed... Like, I really liked it. But then the the, um, the director's cut, when that finally was released, the European cut, is when I, like, truly fell in love with the film. So 17 you know. minutes makes a lot of difference. It certainly does. Well, and then you had stuff like, this was a TV movie, but do either of you guys remember The Midnight Hour? Mm, no. I think, although, but I, was that the one you posted on Facebook just the other day? Yeah, it, it, it's that Halloween one with Sherry Belafonte and Jordi LaForge. And, oh, and Peter Vampire, right? D.D. Pfeiffer, and it's, a, it's on Halloween, and it's got it's got Kirkwood Smith as the town sheriff and, and all that. I watched the, that played on HBO all the time, even though it was an ABC TV movie. Every Halloween, HBO showed Midnight Hour. I loved that movie. And then you had, Brad would love this, Nailgun Massacre, although the soundtrack <laughs> might uh, get him hit. You had stuff like The Mutilator, Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2 finally came out this year. Once Bitten, kind of more of a comedy, but a surprisingly funny movie. You have Phenomena slash Creepers, Reanimator. Yay. Changed yes. everything. Return of the Living Dead, Rocktober Blood, Silver Bullet, The Stuff, Underworld, mm. even if Clive Barker hates it, it's not a bad film. The Underrated Warning Sign. If nothing beyond Reanimator came out, it would still be a revolutionary year. It seems like we've said uh, that a beyond few Reanimator. times. Well, I didn't mean beyond Reanimator. If nothing, okay, if nothing else came out aside from Reanimator, Better. it still would be a revolutionary year for, for horror movies. I mean, Reanimator was just the movie uh, that people were continuing to talk about. It's been just uh, constantly referenced, and it's one of the 
few like movies uh, that has Lovecraftian horror themes and gets it right. It's kind of like uh, In the Mouth of Madness when people are looking, you know, for movies that have that uh, Lovecraftian vibe to it. It's like you can't not mention Reanimator. It's one of the ones that just does it so well and just does it like just nails it. It's such a great, scary movie. But I mean, with that, with uh, Day of the Dead. Um, Ironically you know, enough, both Reanimator and Day of the Dead were released unrated. Something you really couldn't get away with theatrically today, could you? Well, you could, but you like would have to go to the art house theaters because they're the only ones that'll accept like unrated movies. I just find it ironic that there were two within months of each other, two major horror films that were both unrated right next to one another. I find that a little ironic and kind of cool. Yeah, it's something that really just doesn't happen these days. But yeah, there's there was some great um, horror movies. I'm with you, too, on uh, Friday the 13th, The New Beginning, like that. A lot of people have rediscovered that over the years. And it's like, OK, it's not Jason. But if you look at it as kind of a uh, I mean, it, it's a sequel. But, you know, if you look at it from the perspective of it's a, you know, a side story or a side quill or whatever, you know, it's still a good movie. There's great kills. There's wonderful nudity. And it's, it's I personally new- found the little punk rock chick really attractive. Yeah, there's some uh, there's some excellent horror. Maybe, yeah, you know what? Uh, Cat's Eye is another one. The James. No, the James Woods segment is the only one that saves Cat's Eye. Oh, boo. oh the ledge is really In good. College. Yeah, the ledge is the ledge is so funny. Like with uh, with uh, Ro- Robert Hayes, and he's like he's on the ledge, and he's fighting with the bird, and the bird like keeps coming back and pecking him in the foot. <laughs> oh, come on! Like it's it's good because it's really scary and tense, but like that the like it's funny. It does a really good job of keeping that humor in there. It does have a very creep show vibe to it. And uh, I mean, it gets it's a little cornball, uh, you know, with the troll at the end. I mean, that appealed more to the younger me, but uh, I still liked it. And it's always good to see, you know, a a cat kicking some ass. Uh, Well, there's there's several in here that we've already said reanimator. I I fell madly in love with reanimator when I finally saw it. It actually took a as I said, I wasn't as diehard into horror. I saw them occasionally. I like the old school. But this is when I start my transition into it and a buddy of mine remember i told you oddly enough about the room full of drunk doctors watching reanimator on the last yes, you mentioned that last week yes well the guy that got me to watch reanimator is that guy that grew up to be a doctor and invited me over with a bunch of his friends and so that's how i actually saw reanimator for the first time was with this friend of mine named joe but uh i think the one film if we're going to talk horror that stands out this year the most at least it does for me besides fright night that's my personal emotions is return of the living dead this movie at least where i grew up here in alpina was explosive i kid you not kids were coming to school dressed like the punkers like the week it hit video here and being ceremoniously or unceremoniously kicked out immediately. You think this is a fucking joke? It's a way of life. (laughs) That's pretty much what was going on here. Uh, Send more cops. That movie is, (laughs) it's that, that hard balance of black comedy and horror that so many films try and fail. It's just a really great little movie. And uh, The Stuff was another black comedy that I also love a lot. You know, I can't honestly think of one person who's seen it that told me they didn't like it. 
it's like it's supposed to be, you know, somewhat tongue in cheek. But yeah, I mean, the stuff is is terrific. I, I love this stuff. If people listen to the show, they can kind of figure out where I gravitate towards, you know, just hearing like, OK, Return of the Living Dead, Fright Night, the stuff. Obviously, I like a little tongue in cheek. I, I like, the fun, you know, Evil Dead 2, all time favorite. Not this year, but you know what I mean? There is one movie and I, I'm still a little on the fence on and I'll probably get some hate for this one. I did not like Day of the Dead when I first saw it. I, when I first saw it. Now, I think, uh, honestly, it's the best of the three Romero. You know, let, let's leave Land of the Dead out because that came so much later. At the mm-hmm. time, the last of the Romero trilogy, I didn't like it either when I first saw it. It wasn't until the 90s that I really appreciated that movie and saw it for what it was. I think that that is not quite as uh, obscure as you think. I mean, as far as people not liking them, I think that there are a lot of the general consensus was when it came out that uh, it wasn't as good. And I think the problem was, was that it was following up on Dawn of the Dead. Dawn of the Dead is such a pivotal, revolutionary, groundbreaking zombie movie. Also, the fact that it came out a month after Return of the Living Dead. Right. And so Day of the Dead... Uh, you know, with all the kind of internal turmoil and it, it wasn't quite what Romero had in mind. It still was close, but it wasn't like, I mean, with, with Dawn, from what I understand was Dawn was pretty much like the movie that he wanted to make, but day had like some issues and it wasn't quite what he wanted. You know, so that is one that definitely has found its audience and been rediscovered. And a lot of people have gone back and watched again and, you know, with different expectations and have greatly enjoyed it more now than they did back then. Sting and Jennifer Beals are boring as hell in the movie. The reason to watch a movie like The Bride is for Clancy Brown. He's fantastic as Frankenstein's monster, but he's only a subplot. You know, you have like Demons. Demons is a fantastic movie with a great heavy metal soundtrack. Only got a token release over here in the U.S. Hard Rock Zombies. Fun as hell. It's not a very well-made movie. It's just really, really fun. You got stuff like Rocktober Blood. Yes. You know, it, it's good for what it is. Uh, what do you mean good for what it is? Rocktober Blood's fantastic. It's basically what if Kiss were zombies. You've got rainbow eyes. I, I remember seeing The Bride and the trailers and the Siskel and Ebert and everything focused on Sting. And his storyline. And when I finally saw the movie, the subplot with Clancy Brown and David Rappaport, who was in Time Bandits, one of the little people, the leader, was what caught me. Because Time Bandits was just, again, one of my favorite movies growing up. It was huge with me. No pun intended on the the thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, that part of the story is actually the movie's worth watching just for that story. That storyline almost sticks out in a good, bad way. I mean, it feels awkward and like that should be the movie. And unfortunately there's not a lot of it, but what there is of it is worth it. Not the other ones, but I think we are overlooking a movie that was kind of big at the time, still kind of a smaller movie. And that's silver bullet. I I really can't put that. That was again, here was kind of big. That movie was very well received here. And Gary Busey kind of hit the map with, with guys my age at that time with Silver Bullet. Because Gary Busey is everybody's black sheep uncle in that movie. Yeah, the hee-haw, he's all right, you know, with that gag. And we heard that for months. 
My my sister, who I, I love dearly, I have an older sister who has been ruining movies for me ever since I was young. Silver Bullet was out on VHS, and uh, uh, I think I was seeing it sometime in the 90s, and uh, I I settled in to watch it. She comes in, she's like, oh, Silver Bullet, I love that movie. Oh, you won't believe that the blank is the werewolf. And I'm like, why? Why would you, like, why would you just, like, I just put the VHS tape in. Why would you tell, like, I mean, I still really enjoyed the movie, but the whole time I'm just sitting there, my arms crossed, like, God damn it. Like, See, I have one major problem with Silver Bullet, and it's at Stephen King's feet himself. No, I've read Cycle of the Werewolf, the book, in quotes, that it's based on. It's actually started off as a calendar, and it was, never mind, it's a complicated thing, but it wasn't a book, but it was a book. The problem is Stephen King wrote the screenplay for this. I don't understand what was going on here. There is nudity in the movie, and there is tons of violence, so they had to know they were going to get an R rating, and there's not one swear word in the whole movie. Like, you've got you've got people calling each other booger brains and mm-hmm. lard butt. And it's like, it was like he wrote the movie to be a PG, but then wrote the violence to be an R, which just makes the final movie really awkward to me. Did either of you guys notice that? Well, I'm trying to remember the nudity. Are you talking about when he's, I think they show the be- the butt of the priest, don't they? No, it's at the very beginning when he kills the woman that's going to kill herself, who's putting on all the makeup. And her, I remember and that her. scene. Yeah, uh, you can see her tits in that. Oh, okay. I honestly forgot about that. So, so the movie is shot like it's supposed to be R, but written like it's supposed to be PG, which makes it just awkward to me. I mean, really, when, when you've got an adult character calling someone a booger brain, I'm like... Was that a was that supposed to be satirical and I missed it or what? Because that just doesn't land for me. I you know it has to be fair. It has been a long time since I've seen it, so maybe I have to rewatch it. I, I you know because I recall it, it actually having a beheading early on in the film and the last yeah thing he actually beheads is, that that woman yeah and and it's uh I didn't notice the lack of swearing. I was too engrossed in the story, so I can't say fair I enough. noticed it. But this wasn't just a horror year. Science fiction had a pretty big year in 1985 as well. You've got Back to the Future, which I know everybody loves this movie. I've never liked the movie, and none of you are going to be able to convince me that it's a good movie. If you like it, fine. Like it. I'm not taking anything away from you. I do not get the least bit enjoyment out of this movie. Same with, like, Cocoon. Everybody loved Cocoon. I find Cocoon to be boring as hell. And then you have a smart little science fiction film this year, like Daryl. Daryl was a fantastic film. You've got stuff like Creature, William Malone's blatant alien ripoff. You've got Dungeon Master, again from Charles Band, the fantastic, not really a science fiction movie, but kind of a science fiction movie, also a fantasy and a horror film. you got Enemy Mine. I love that movie. Joe Dante's Explorers, Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, Life Force, which I might fit more into the science fiction category. Fred, we've got Radioactive Dreams this year. Real mm-hmm. genius. Amazing film. You got Space Rage coming direct to video, the first Trancers movie, Weird Science, and then Brazil. Brazil is a film I think could only have come out of 1985 and exemplifies everything that was amazing about 80s studio science fiction. Even even the butchered theatrical cut is still miles above anything else the studios were putting out in terms of edginess and thought-provokingness without, and when I say edginess, I don't mean having to show lots of boobies and gore. I mean in, man, you're dancing on a line here. 
Explorers. God, I love Explorers. It's such like it is the science fiction version of the Goonies. It has that like it's whimsy. actually one of the most Joe Dante-ish movies Joe Dante's ever made. It really is. Like it just has that just Dante earmark all over it. And uh it, it's it's so like the kids in it are, are really good and the humor is on point. The effects are great. The concept is great. And like, I just love it. I've seen it uh, a bunch of times and I always, uh, I mean, it gets really goofy um, in the third act, but like leading up to it is just it's, wonderful. But I'll counter you. It stays fun even when it gets goofy. Oh, it stays fun, but I'm saying, like, the thing is, the third act is still good, but the first, like, two-thirds is so strong because of, like, the, you know, the the kids, you know, they're, they're, they're going and they're getting all these parts and they're building the spaceship and they go up into space. And then when they finally do meet the aliens, it, it turns kind of goofy, but, I mean, I still, like, love it. I still adore it. It's just, uh... Okay, you know what the weird part is? I think the last third of the movie is actually an Amazing Stories episode that happens to have the exploring kids in them. <laughs> you know, I, I've been meaning to revisit uh, Enemy Mine. That one is one where I, I see pop... I Mickey mean, Mouse is a big, stupid dope. Yeah, it's been popping up a lot more lately. I don't know why, so uh, I've been meaning to uh, to revisit that. This, weirdly enough, was the year of John Stockwell. Because John Stockwell's in My Science Project, he's in Radioactive Dreams, and he's in City Limits. Oh, God, yeah. Strangely enough, this is the John Stockwell's year. And also, am I too big of a film nerd that am I the only one here who's seen City Limits not with Mike and the Bots before they did it? I saw City Limits long after uh, Mystery Science Theater did it. So it was like I saw the Mystery Science Theater episode, and then many years later, uh, I, I saw City Limits. And uh, I always I was... feel weird when that happens on Mystery Science Theater, like with Space Mutiny. I kind of had the feeling from everybody, you know, when that came out, that's like, wait a minute, I caught that on HBO years ago. Am I the only one who's ever seen this movie unriff? Well, I like I've kind of come to discover that like there's been a lot of movies that they've done that are just, you know, really horrible, awful movies. But they've even said they're like, we've looked for movies that like they were either really, you know, the whole so so bad they're good or they were bad, but they were like they were still like very redeemable. They weren't terrible. Speaking of Mystery Science Theater, not a horror or sci fi film. Jodan Baker's Final Justice came out this year, too. But we'll we'll talk about the non sci fi ones later. Now, that's one I have not seen. Unrift. <laughs> Unrift. Well, now we're a little bit more in uh, my wheelhouse. I was still a sci fi kid, big sci fi head. I tried to see everything that was science fiction people don't know it i'm a huge albert pune fan radioactive dreams i love this movie it is so bizarre so weird uh, you just got to see it if you haven't seen it you got to see it it's just so much fun so it, strange it's, it's actually so much fun in the current issue of fangoria magazine i do a write-up of the movie yeah i review the movie in the current issue of fangoria magazine because i love it that much and i even got albert pune to give me some comments on it and uh as i already uh, mentioned uh, my science project uh, that was that was my explorers I love that movie. I have the Blu-ray right over there <laughs> sitting. I should uh, be at home watching cartoons and hear I'm about uh, to get flamed out by Barney Rubble. Uh, th that, there's just so many quotable lines, uh, so many great little moments. And another movie I know Cecil likes, also a personal favorite of mine, Defcon 4. Yes. 
this is talk about the little movie that no matter how much you talk about it, no one sees this film. I don't know what it is. Maybe I've seen a, it. I just don't like it. Uh, oh, oh come crazy. on. How can you not like this? I, I loved the first 10 minutes. Basically, when they get back to Earth, the whole film just turns into a really bad Canadian Mad Max. Oh, gosh. He likes the DEFCON 4 part of it. All right. Uh. I mean, the the thing is, like, I mean, the DEFCON 4 part of it I really enjoy, but, like, the, the part of the movie, the part on Earth is kind of the Mad Max post-apocalyptic cannibal thing. One of, if not my favorite post-apocalyptic films. I just cannot get enough of that one. Same here, but uh, I think Josh knows this is coming already. Uh, 1985 Houses, what may be one of my favorite B science fiction movies of all time. Josh, what is that movie? That would be Trancers from Charles uh, Band. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I cannot tell you, as I said about Fright Night. Now, I did not Stop see Trancers. Stop being a squidhead. <laughs> Squids. Yeah. Dry hairs for squids. He never says squid head, so please never say that again. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Basically, much like Fright Night, as I said, was important. Although Fright Night, I forgot to mention that even though I said my dad was falling asleep, going to see movies with my dad was very important, by the way. He didn't like movies. He didn't like going to the theaters because he couldn't smoke. When he found out he could take me to movies and he could smoke, we could take sandwiches, him and I bonded a lot more going to the drive-in. So that was another aspect I forgot to leave out. Uh, Trancers, I did not have the good fortune to see in the theater, although I'll still remember to this day, I always looked at the Detroit News, or Detroit Free Press, actually, and to see what was playing in case we had to do a quick trip to Detroit for some reason for my dad's work. And I remember seeing, it was one of those posters like the theater would have in the newspaper. It had Reanimator on one side and Trancers on the other. And I heard of Reanimator... Hadn't seen it yet, of course, but I heard of it, but I had no idea what Transfers was. And I saw Transfers years later. I still wish I had cut that out of the newspaper. And it just, I don't know what it is about this movie, but it hit a chord with me. Maybe it's my love of detectives and my love of science fiction. And it was the Reese's Peanut Butter Cup of movies for me, maybe. Mm-hmm. It had Helen Hunt, who I had a bit of a crush on from The Quarterback Princess. She was never cuter than when she's in that Santa's Helper costume. Oh, that little blue streak she has in her hair. Uh, she's just so freaking adorable. She was one of my biggest crushes. The lines in that movie are are really funny. And mom, that man shot, shot Santa Claus. Uh <laughs> It's just an endlessy of great little things, but it's a it's a tight piece of storytelling. It's often dismissed as a Terminator ripoff, which is a little weird. I know that it does have those Blade Runner Terminator touches, but it's one of those films that really became its own thing. And there's little throwaway lines that you just don't see in B-movies today. You know, we get that garbage like Sharknado and people, oh, that's a B-movie. No, that's crap. That's garbage. B-movies were just, you know, films that didn't have a bigger budget. And we've gone through all that before. There's a moment in the film. At the beginning of the film, we see early on, not at the very beginning, but early on, we see Jack coming out of the ocean. And there's a sign that says Lost Angeles because Los Angeles has fallen into the ocean. And we see that Jack has been diving in Los Angeles. He has this obsession with old things. And so when he travels back in time, he's actually in Los Angeles. And there's a moment where him and Helen are trying to escape the bad guy on mopeds. And he says, we got to split up. And she goes, but you don't know your way around here. He goes, yeah, I do. I used to swim through here. You what? Mm -hmm. And then they take off. That's a circular connection. And it seems like a throwaway little, but that little moment, 
makes the world real. People don't realize that it's those little things. It's little touches like that do mean something to me. And that film's very special. There were a couple of other key ones. Like Weird Science is, okay, as much as I love the main storyline, Bill Paxton steals this movie from <laughs> Anthony Michael Hall, Kelly LeBrock, and Ian Mitchell Smith. You're Bill, stupid, but what? Bill Paxton just steals this film. And as much as I hated the TV series, Lee Turgeson was channeling Bill Paxton in the TV series so you could really believe that this was the same character. You had two other ones were from other years, but we got them late and early. Godzilla 1985. Yes, in Japan, it came out in 1984. We got it as the Dr. Pepper product placement movie that we got, and I love it. In a weird way, I grew up watching Godzilla 1985 so much. Even though Godzilla 1984, aka Return of Godzilla, is the better movie, I like Godzilla 1985 better for some reason. And also, and Cecil, you'll love this, we didn't get it until a year later in 1986, but in the UK, Max Headroom, the original Max Headroom 20 Minutes into the Future, aired yes. on television. We I get it on VHS that. in 1986, though. Yeah, Max Headroom was just, uh, God, such a massive part of my my youth. Mm -hmm. uh, way, like, you know, I know it was the whole 20 Minutes into the Future, but it really was. I mean, that show just predicted so much, and it's just, it still holds up. It's still great. It was so and... dirty. The, the original TV movie was so dirty and grimy. It, it just mm -hmm. felt so visceral and real. I'm happy, and I'm kind of surprised that uh, it hasn't been rebooted yet in some you know capacity, but um, I'm sure I'm sure it's on somebody's list of uh, things to screw up royally. Hey, somebody was able to obtain the rights for Pixels. Mm. So somebody figures out who actually owns Max Headroom. Well, for Max Headroom, I, I can't add too much other than I I do love the original Max Headroom uh, more than the TV show, though I enjoyed the TV show a lot. Uh, but it, it didn't quite capture the magic of that original short. Uh, I also love the fact that people think that Max was actually computer generated as that was actually Matt Fewer prosthetic. And I think that's mm -hmm. also kind of cool. Sort of a early look at the combination of actual CG, which was the background and a prosthetic. And it's neat that it could fool people. Well, this is interesting because... Again, 85, and I'm sort of just realizing this too. 85 was a big transitional year for me. Uh, I grew up watching, they used to show Godzilla on TV 50, Monday through Friday on these runs uh, at noon during the summer. So you would see Godzilla movies for like a week. I grew up with Godzilla watching them. And 85 came out, Godzilla 85. I was so excited and I saw it in the theater and was horribly disappointed. It really represented the death of Godzilla for me. It was the end of my love affair with Godzilla. And that's really all to say about it. I don't have anything. There's nothing I can add to that. I didn't like the movie. I still don't like the movie. I've seen the unedited, or well, the original edit, I should say, from Japan without Raymond Burr. And I still don't like the movie. It's a better edit, but it really represented the death of my love affair with Godzilla. And so, yeah, I think it's the best of all the Godzilla films. I even like it better than Godzilla 54, a.k.a. Godzilla King of the Monsters. Uh, that's it, just me. Yeah, I look at Godzilla is one of those things. I mean, they're all, you know, very similar in certain ways. 
they tonally go through a lot of shifts, you know, from serious to silly, back to serious. And there's a few later ones that are really good. Oh, the like, the, the, the 90s one, the early 90s direct-to-video ones? Godzilla versus Mecha, Mecha Ghidorah is fantastic with the time travel thing. Oh, that's, I think, personally, you just nailed the best one, in my opinion. I think that's the best of the whole new series. It's it's a lot of fun, and it captures the spirit of both the, the somewhat goofier and the more serious. But that's what 85 will always represent for me, is is the death of the my, my childhood love affair of Godzilla. But then there were a lot of non-horror or sci-fi movies that came out in 85 that were very key, such as Martin Scorsese's, and what, when I say disastrous, right, let me explain, disastrous after hours. I think there are parts of After Hours that are amazing. And then other parts where I'm going, what the hell were you thinking, Martin? To me, very uneven movie. Then we got like the first American Ninja film. We got the horribly unfunny Steve Gutenberg comedy, Bad Medicine. The hilarious Better Off Dead. You've got The Breakfast Club, Brewster's Millions, Clue, Eric Roberts in The Coca-Cola Kid. You've got Chuck Norris in Code of Silence, Schwarzenegger in Commando, Sam Raimi's Amazing Crime Wave. You got Death Wish 3, Desperately Sucking Susan, The Emerald Forest, Joe Don Baker in the fi- in Final Justice, the first Fletch movie. Girls Just Want to Have Fun with Sarah Jessica Parker and, Sarah Jessica Parker and Helen Hunt, which is arguably the most 80s movie of all time. You got Goonies, Gotcha, Invasion of the Invasion USA, Jewel of the Nile, Just One of the Guys, King Solomon's Mines, Crush Groove, Lady Hawk, The Last Dragon, Legend of Billie Jean, Lost in the Dust, Man with One Red Shoe, Mean Season, National Lampoon's European Vacation, Out of Africa, Police Academy 2, Police Story and the Protector, bringing Jackie Chan to America. You got Rambo First Blood Part 2, Red Sanja. Remo Williams, The Adventure Begins, Return to Oz, Rocky IV, Runaway Train, Santa Claus the Movie, Spies Like Us, tremendously underrated movie we'll be talking about next week, St. Elmo's Fire, Summer Rental, Teen Wolf, To Live and Die in L.A., Transylvania 65000, Tough Turf, Euphoria, Volunteers, Wild Geese 2, Witness, Year of the Dragon, Young Sherlock Holmes. Holy crap was this a big year! Just a ridiculously good year uh, with uh, with Rambo, with Rocky Four, with uh, Brazil and Fight Night. And I know uh, you weren't uh, particularly really enjoyed a view a kill. It's that's always been one of the Bond movies that I know uh, it it kind of gets lumped in with some of the crap. But I always thought it was a, a lot of fun. I think that uh, it's got some great set pieces having uh, Grace Jones in there. Like, it's so funny to have, you know, I mean, she's not a Bond girl, but he has to sleep with her. And it's just like, it's very funny. I mean, they even play off of that where he's just like, oh, you know, (laughs) I mean, oh, it's so like good. Uh, Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, I know gets a lot of crap, but it's just I I really enjoy that. Weird Science, uh, again, Explorers, uh, Return of the Living Dead, Lady Hawk, European Vacation, which was very toned down from uh, the first vacation, but still good in its own way. Commando. I think he's going to pork her. I, and I liked uh, I liked European Vacation. I actually saw it more because uh, at the time it was on cable just all the freaking time. Uh, amazing, amazing movies. Um, Breakfast Club influenced so many other films of that kind. Goonies. So, yeah, for Goonies. Yeah, I mean, you could sit here and just I'll just keep listing off movies. There's so many movies that are on like when, when you're seeing people do their top 
100 list, so many movies from 85 would be in it. I'm almost positive I've talked about my relationship with To Live and Die in L.A., so I'll, I'll skip that because that also is a story about my dad and I. Uh, it's also an amazing film, too. Yeah, that was an R-rated film I saw that year with my dad, and you know, my, he had to talk my mom into letting us go see it. Uh, and uh, so that one was uh, very special to me as well for that reason. But um, this year has two movies that I, I was already a pretty good reader. I'm not going to say I was this big, big reader growing up, but I was a good reader. I, I read quite a bot uh, quite a bit but there were two movies this year that actually started me reading two of my favorite series of books from this point on one uh, i think is kind of obvious if you know the year is fletch i love the fletch novels from gregory wyden and if you haven't read them i cannot recommend them enough just keep in mind they are not like the movie the first fletch a little bit uh, the second fletch fletch lives is not from the books at all but the the novels are sarcastic it's one of the reasons when I heard uh, when Kevin Smith, who I've never been really crazy about as a filmmaker, but when I heard he was up for doing that and Jason Lee was up for playing the young Fletch, which is from the novels because uh, Gregory went back and started writing. He wrote two books called Fletch 1, W-O-N, and Fletch 2, T-O-O. Those were young Fletch. And when I heard Kevin Smith was up to do Fletch 1, I thought, now there's a good fit. That's, you know, he, Smith is very verbally verbose. He can be a good story. He's sarcastic. I could see Jason Lee being a very unusual choice, but I think a good choice. Other is a movie that's not as well liked. I still love it, and I don't care what people say, and that's Remo Williams' The Adventure Begins, which I'm thinking about adding to my list now that I'm thinking, but we won't say what that list is right now. I'm like, uh, shut up. That's not till next week. I'm not going to say what that list is. I'm Now I'm thinking about it. I might add this to my list. I love this movie. Uh, it's directed by an ex-Bond director, Guy Hamilton. And yes, it's clunky. Okay, it's not perfect. But the movie's heart and soul is the relationship between Remo and Shun. And it got me to read the novels that it's based off of called the Destroyer novels. And the heart of those books is the relationship between Remo and Shun. So in that respect, it got it absolutely right. In fact, it's pretty close to the first book there's changes in the villain and a few things like that uh plus the destroyer novels were a lot sleazier uh but then again so were the bond books i love Rima williams and uh it it got me reading those kind of dime store spy assassin books i checked out a lot more max bolin and several others that were uh, around at that time period just because of Rima williams and so those films stand out more to me because of that. It, it got me reading uh, serial novels. All right, well, let's take a look at the best and worst pictures of the year. Now, for the Academy Awards, best picture went to Out of Africa, boring piece of claptrap as far as I'm concerned. Best director for Sidney Pollock for the same boring piece of claptrap. Best actor was William Hurt for Kiss of the Spider Woman. He did a great job in the movie. I'm just not a fan of the film. Best actress was Geraldine Page for A Trip to Bountiful. I don't even know that movie, so whatever. Supporting actor, Don Amici in Cocoon. Supporting actress, Angelica Houston in Pritzi's Honor. You know what? This was a really shit year for the major Academy Awards, wasn't it? I like Cocoon. I think you're silly. And there were some good performances. I don't know. I mean, the thing is, the movies that we love are not the kind of movies that primarily uh, will often get nominated for major awards like that. So uh, it's kind of a, you know, it's a different thing. It doesn't uh, doesn't mean anything. So Cocoon, uh, 
I really liked Cocoon at the time. I, I have not seen it, though, since probably the early 90s. It's definitely a film that deserves a revisit. It's not one of my favorites, to be sure. It's very enjoyable. And I have to ask, on Kiss of the Spider-Woman, didn't Raul Julia win for Best Supporting Actor? I, I, or was he nope, just nominated? He was, he was nominated for Best Supporting Actor. Okay, he did not win. Don Amici won for Cocoon for Best Supporting Actor. Okay, because the critics and everybody were talking about Raul Julia at that time. I remember, oh, yeah, the so. performances. I'm not a fan of the movie. The performances are almost impeccable. Yeah, it, it was a it was a strange year. Uh, you know, we, if you look at these titles, there's some great stuff we know. Better Off Dead. Oh, gosh. Love that film. Lots of films that would go on to become what we call cult classics, I think. Well, I, I, but, but I and, think, like, with the Academy, and I'm not saying it just because I love the movie. Like, Brazil is so well-directed. How was it not nominated for a f***ing Oscar? I, I'm not going to disagree with you on that. Brazil is an amazing film. How? I don't know. I, here's the thing. I don't put stock in the Oscars. I never have and I never will. There was something as a kid you kind of go, ooh, what's this? And then you quickly discover what it really is. Uh, even as a kid, I kind of caught on to it. The Australian Best Picture winner was a, a film nobody's ever heard of called Bliss. It's an Australian movie that every I've shown this trailer to a dozen different people and they're all like Terry, Terry Gilliam made this movie, right? I'm like, no, this is the most Terry Gilliam film Terry Gilliam had nothing to do with. Part of the tagline sums up the movie perfectly. On the day he died, his life would never be the same. It's a fantastic one of those rubber reality, but very fun and light. If you... If you liked Brazil and Time Bandits, you will love Bliss. It won the Australian Academy Award for Best Picture. That tells me that the Australians were more willing to take some chances with their academies than Americans were. Screw you, Academy. But then we have the other side of the token. We have the Razzies. Worst picture was Rambo First Blood Part 2. Oh, well, I don't think... It, no, Rambo, like, set... The new bar that action movies have been following since then. Like, are you kidding me? Like, I mean, that was... Rambo not expendable. Rambo is one of the most influential action movies in history. And once again, showing how stupid and just idiotic the the, um, the Razzies are by picking that. They're uh, just idiotic. Well, worst director was Sylvester Stallone for Rocky IV. Okay, Rocky IV does kind of suck, so that one I don't think is so far out of the wheelhouse. Look, Rocky <laughs> IV is a ton of fun. Come on. You, you know how many times Ivan Drago has been referenced and taught, you know? It just, the, the frequent montages, the, Rocky IV is... Half of that movie's a montage! Half that movie is a montage and the movie's great. All right, worst actor was Sylvester Stallone for both Rambo First Blood Part Two and Rocky IV. Of course. Worst actress was Linda Blair for a threefer, Night Patrol, Savage Island, and Savage Streets. Okay, uh, she wasn't great in any of those, but she definitely wasn't terrible. You calling me a liar? Sorry, Night Patrol. <laughs> yeah, th these people need to understand what bad acting is. Worst supporting actor was Rob Lowe in St. Elmo's Fire. Oh, come on. Now, now we're getting silly. I'm just reading the list. This isn't my list, guys. Worst supporting actress was Bridget Nielsen for Rocky IV. And then worst new star was Bridget Nielsen for Red Sonja and Rocky IV. Okay, in Red Sonja, she was really awful. She was out of her depth with all the dialogue she was given. Bridget Nielsen got a lot better by the time the 90s rolled around, but she's terrible in Red Sonja. That one I'll give them. But holy crap, did I fall in love with her as Red Sonja. <laughs>
But my point is she was I'm not a good actress in that movie. She was not a good actress in Red Sonja, but they wanted, they needed somebody who could, you, you know, stand next to Schwarzenegger and not look small. And, uh, and they got that. It's just that she wasn't a particularly good actress. But, but I mean, also the movie has, I mean, I enjoy the hell out of the movie, but I mean, the movie does have its problems. And I think that that's, you know, maybe with a stronger director, he might have been able to pull a little bit better of a performance out of her. But, uh, you know, it was it was kind of her. I mean, look at any uh, almost any actor who goes, uh, you know, from modeling and getting into the, you know, that like she was better in she's better in Red Sonia than she was in Cobra. <laughs> yeah, but she was actually good in Beverly Hills Cop, too. Well, she didn't really have a lot of lines in Beverly Hills Cop 2. All she did was have to, like, stand around with moosed up hair and shoot people with the laser sight. And she wasn't bad at it. Well, I, I guess, in truth, there's not much to add other than to say Rambo 2, again, in that time period, I don't... I think Cecil is absolutely right about the influence part. To a degree, there was already a shift occurring. This is the same year Death Wish 3 happened, for instance. Uh, so I think the shift was already occurring, but Rambo culturally was even a large influence and i can't tell you how many guys i knew had to have that knife okay you you really don't know you never think a knife would be the star of a movie it was in rambo 2 everybody mm. wanted the rambo survival knife i can't like express that it was everywhere uh, my tick cecil off a little bit uh first blood is a favorite movie it will always be a favorite movie i don't like rambo 2 anymore it does not hold up at all. Uh, not for me. I watched it and I laughed my head off at how bad that movie is. The photography is borderline. Oh, I can't even think of the word I want. It, to. It's borderline it, flat like a television show. It, it's like a, it's yes. like a team episode. There's a great there. I think you've nailed it because they've got shots like it doesn't. They don't even look composed. They OK, uh, Sylvester, you just stand there and shoot and go ah it it it's so childish so poorly composed in a lot of the shots it it looks like you're going from a set to someone's backyard Do we get to win this time it, it's just not good it doesn't hold up I, in many ways i think rambo 3 is better because it looks like a real movie whereas i'm going to go with josh on this one part 2 looks like an a team episode you're both dead to me I agreed that culturally, though, it was huge. I don't disagree with that. But as a movie, it's not good. All right. Well, let's talk about what movies people thought were good. The box office. Number one, surprises absolutely nobody. Back to the Future. Number two was the film we were just dissing, Rambo First Blood Part 2. Whether we liked it or not, whether the critics liked it or not, the audiences did. And then again, Rocky Four. Stallone was having a gangbusters year. Then we had The Color Purple, film I'm not a big fan of, but culturally and critically deserves all of the praise heaped on it. I'm just not a fan. And then we have Out of Africa, which I think, until The English Patient came out, was one of the most pretentious sleeping pills I've ever seen from a major studio. I've never finished it. Exactly. It's boring as fuck. Me either. <laughs> it's, it's just not my particular brand of film. We used to put it on at a video store I worked at just to chase customers out, and I'm not We're joking. Closing in 10 minutes, put on Out of Africa, uh, then Cocoon, Jewel of the Nile, which that one boggles my mind. As much as I loved Romancing the Stone, Jewel of the Nile was a goddamn train wreck as far as I'm concerned. I Very hated disappointing. that movie, and I loved Romancing the Stone. 
Yeah, it was a major drop off. It was very corny, too. Uh, well, I mean, the first one's corny, but it does it in a very earnest way. And the second one is just corny for the sake of being corny. Well, I think the first captures what it was trying to be, like those pulp novels of bringing that back up. But it feels like that. It, it feels like the kind of novels Joan Wilder supposedly writes. And the second film was way too self-aware. It was too self-aware. And again, if I could say that weird photography again, remember the shot of Danny DeVito on the camel riding along? And it's you. it's so studio. It's painful. Yeah. I mean, this is a major blockbuster movie of that year. Again, it looks ter- the effects are terrible. I don't know the character's name, but he, when he comes walking out of the fire at the end, the jewel, he's the jewel. And the thing and he comes walking out of that fire like like he's a messiah. And you're like, wow, those effects are bad. Well, and then you had Witness, a film that I think is half of a good movie. The, the I actually like the cop stuff and the undercover stuff, the whole learning to accept other people and Kelly McGillis being corrupted by, you know, Harrison Ford's outside, blah, blah, blah. It was all boring as hell to me, but so it's half of a decent film. And then you had The Goonies, and the film that probably will surprise everyone is in the top ten, the critically hated, but I love Spies Like Us. Whether the critics hated it or not, it made $60 million in 1985. No small feat for the film that has that had an average rating of one and a half stars from all of the major critics. Just like always, just because people went to go see a movie didn't mean that everybody liked the movie, but I loved Spies Like Us, but then Out of Africa is number five, and it's a boring sleeping pill, so... This is one of the good years. Are we ever going to get a year like 1985 again? Probably not. Studios anymore, they panic. They don't uh, take risks like they used to. They don't stick to their guns, buckle when they can. And we're to the point now where they're now like attacking the audience. You know, instead of trying to, you know, hey, let's make a good movie and make people want to see it. It's now either... There's a group of people that are bitching about it, so let's let's change what we've invested in to make it something different. They'll they'll just come out and say that you're an asshole for not wanting to see what we uh, what we have made and letting it kind of live or die on its own uh, merits. You know, live or die on hey, we hired this person to do this job to make this film, and this is what we released instead of uh, you know, well, this doesn't have enough this in it, or this doesn't have enough that in it, or it's not, uh, it's it should be funnier, it should have a different tone, it should have this instead of being like, you know what, this is what we made here, watch it, enjoy it, and uh, anymore. Uh, I feel that f- movies are too focus grouped. Um, they're like, it's got to have this and this and this in it. And, uh, you know, they're like, instead of making the movie that they want to make, they have like a box where they just go down. OK, it has, uh, you know, does it have humor in it? Does it appeal to this demographic? Does it, you know, will it? And and they just end up putting out these kind of milk toast movies that you know, they try to appeal to too many people. And Did you ever up- see the comment cards for Videodrome? I can't believe Universal ended up releasing the movie after those comment cards. Again, but it's it's because they stood behind the film. And you know what? Here we are years and years later, freaking decades later, still talking about it. It got a Criterion release. It's regarded as one of the best films ever made. This show is a pun off of the title. Exactly. That's why there was that's why there was so many directors that were known. Like that's why we got directors that we still know who they are. Now there's so many movies directors that are just one-offs 
that uh, every now and then when you get a director who makes something that stands out, that's how we get to know them. And that's why there's so many movies anymore where it's almost the director is almost inconsequential because a lot of times they'll just throw in like a hired gun and, you know, just to get the movie out there. And, uh, you know, that's why we have, uh, you know, more uh, Samuel Bayers and less Steven Spielbergs these days. Personal vision is no longer allowed. A film that came out from this year that we didn't talk about was Turk 182 uh, from director Bob Clark, who, of course, did some of the biggest movies that are still talked about to this day. Porky's, A Christmas Story, just to name a few. He later would do films like Cop Dog and Baby Geniuses, and people would constantly ask, how does a director of these films end up doing movies like Cop Dog and Baby Geniuses? And I think he exemplifies exactly what we're talking about, because in an interview, sadly before he was killed, he was talking about him and his brother, I believe it was his brother, were discussing how no one would hire him to do the types of movies he created. He would not jump on a movie unless he felt personally involved. He had to have an attachment to it to develop it, like Murder by Decree or, or, or Porky's, which is loosely based on his years in school. Christmas Story, which is actually from an author, but he loved those stories growing up. Other people, Tom Holland, developed Fright Night from his loves and his passions. Larry Cohen's The Stuff, that's 100% a Larry Cohen movie, people. You will never have a Larry Cohen again. You just won't. You can't. They'll, you'll never have that. Over and over, we see this thematically with these movies we love and adore. And more and more today, we ask the question, why are movies so bad? And that's what I believe Cecil was just addressing a moment ago. It's it's You can't have it. There's no personal attachment. There's no love. You know what? There are some crap movies from that period in the 80s. They're bad. But you know what? They're, the people that were making them at least felt something for them. That's why there's certain movies you go, eh, it's okay. You know, it's not perfect, but it's okay. There's a movie from that very year, Volunteers. It's not a great movie, but it's not unwatchable either. And that's what's missing today. We don't have passion projects. They're gone. Every so often, one will creep up. But you don't hear about that anymore. That's why you don't hear a story like The uh, Usual Suspects anymore, which was that passion project that developed. Reservoir Dogs, the beginning of Quentin's career passion project between him and Harvey Keitel, who fell in love with the script. It just doesn't exist much anymore. I'm going to say much. I'm going to I feel like at all, because how do they get it out there? If you want a passion project, you got to go to YouTube and there's no money there. I got to agree. 1985 was a key year for a lot of different reasons, and I don't think it can happen again. I think everything has changed to the point where it can't. That said, you know who never changes? Cecil. Where can people find him never changing? You can find me uh, always reinventing things uh, over at uh, escapistmagazine.com, goodbadflix.com, and uh, Twitter and Facebook. Where can we find Fred Fritz, who has a domain now? Well, the domain is still inactive, but it's saintstoryteller.com. But you can find me occasionally uh, haunting the night over at the Movie Apocalypse page on Facebook. It will be phased out eventually, just not yet. So you can still go there if you even care to, though I don't think anybody does. Oh, shut up, whiny baby. <laughs> 
You can find me at 1201beyond.com. You can contact this show at 1201beyond at gmail.com. 1985 was a key year. If you weren't alive yet, go back and check out a lot of the films that we talked about or even that I gave a quick cursory mention to. You won't be sorry. Even if you don't like them, you won't be sorry that you've now seen them. Keep one foot in the gutter, one fist in the gold.
Radiodrome is a 1201 Beyond production. Find it and other great content at 1201beyond.com.